Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Heads up. There is a spot of exasperated bad language in this episode. In Minneapolis this month, there was another video, a video of a young black man, 22-year-old Amir Locke, being killed by police. I'm not going to play it. It's only 10 seconds long. It doesn't reveal a whole lot. And it's really sad. But Jeremiah Ellison, he had to watch. When I watched the video for the first time, it was worse than I thought it would be. How? I mean, he's a kid. Ellison is a city council member in Minneapolis. He represents Ward 5, which is just a few blocks away from where the shooting took place. I remember being 22. I, at the time, I probably didn't feel like much of a kid. But man, when I look at my cousins who are now, you know, getting into their 20s, and I'm like, man, these are some kids, you know? So he looked like a kid to me. And uh, he was wrapped in a blanket. And he, he never managed to get unwrapped from that blanket before he was killed. It was early on a Wednesday morning when police officers stormed the apartment where Amir Locke was staying. They charged up to a couch and they kicked it and then they opened fire. If you pause the body cam footage, you can just see that Amir Locke, who was not wanted for anything, had a gun in his hands. He doesn't even have a chance to make any movement before the couch is kicked. And then he is gunned down and he's he's killed right in that moment. And, you know, I, I you know, somebody, and I won't, you know, don't need to get into who, but somebody was like, well, who, 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 who would sleep next, who would sleep with a gun next to them? And I was thinking to myself, you know, I do have a conceal and carry license. I don't carry regularly, but if I was carrying and I ended up sleeping at a friend's house, where the fuck else would I put my gun? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like, um, where else would I put it if not next to me? Um, and so, uh, you know, I, you know, I just kind of thought even some of the excuses that people were coming up with almost instantaneously to try to justify this were just absurd. I know during previous shootings, you'd be like texting with the mayor and constituents and, and getting information. Is that what started happening this time, too? No, actually, I mean, it was, I mean, it was incredibly different. And the political landscape in Minneapolis is really weird right now. This weird political landscape, it's part of the reason I wanted to talk to Jeremiah Ellison. He was elected in part to address police violence. After George Floyd's murder, he pushed for aggressive reform. Things like replacing the police department with the Department of Public Safety. But voters have rejected these kinds of ideas so far. Jeremiah himself nearly got voted out of office back in November. And now here he is, watching another video that's impossible to explain. It made me wonder, 
What is Jeremiah Ellison's next move? I think people are a little siloed, right? I think there's a little bit of, you know, um, of all of the incumbents who were maybe the most out front on these issues, um, I'm probably the only one really returning. Yeah. And uh, And it was a tight election. It was a tight election. Yep, it was. Um, I I think that there was just a little bit of, of, of disbelief that this is happening again and that there doesn't seem to be any sort of improvement to how we're handling it. It sounds like you're saying the last two years have been pretty brutal on the political relationships in your city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's I think that that's basically true. I think every single one of these moments can potentially be a turning point, but I don't think that any of them are inherently a turning point. I mean, if George Floyd wasn't inherently a turning point for our city, which if you look at the two years it's been, I mean, it it wasn't. His death wasn't a turning point in our city. So if George Floyd's death wasn't going to inherently be a turning point for our city, then then every single change is going to have to be, like, as brutally hard fought as, (laughs) as... uh, as anything else. Um, I, you know, I've kind of become convinced of that. Today on the show, another police shooting in Minneapolis. Will the city be able to do anything about it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For Jeremiah Ellison, the shooting of Amir Locke gives him an awful sense of deja vu. He was elected after the police shooting of a black man named Jamar Clark. And when George Floyd was murdered, he really dug in on police reform. You may remember this moment from after Floyd's death, when a bunch of city council members got up at a rally and announced they would be defunding the police. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it. It seemed like major reform was on the cusp of happening. A veto-proof majority of the council had signed on to all this. Jeremiah said he was committed to dismantling the police. But none of that happened. The city's charter hemmed them in. So back in November... Reformers tried another tack. They asked the citizens of Minneapolis themselves to vote on converting the police department into a department of public safety. But that initiative failed, too. The thing is, Jeremiah Ellison, he doesn't see it that way. Look, 45 percent, which is not a winning majority, but 45 percent of voters in Minneapolis walked into the voting booth 
and decided that they no longer wanted the Minneapolis Police Department to be a part of their day-to-day lives. That's not an insignificant number of people. And that's not an insignificant sort of declaration to make with your vote. Did that mean that we were going to have no police in the city uh, had we prevailed in November? Absolutely not. We were still going to have police. We were still going to have a division of law enforcement. I think people didn't necessarily know what it meant because there was no way for the council to make plans and be very clear about what it meant. If you look at the kind of deference the police have been given historically, right? If you look at the kind of, you know, media that we have consumed, right? Like I grew up on Law and & Order and Die Hard, right? Like as much as anybody. Uh, and and if you look at the, the, the kind of media that we consume, I mean, challenging the notion that police make you safer and challenging the notion that rogue police make you safer. I mean, that's a pretty big leap for people to make given the kind of, you know, I guess you could call it mythology that people have consumed, including myself, right? And I think a lot of people sort of, they made that leap. The other thing is that there were a lot of plans. I know that like my colleague, Philippe Cunningham, had put together a a chart, like an organizational chart about what the Department of Public Safety could look like, right? Obviously, those things would have to be voted on once the charter allowed us to make those changes. But those things just kind of got drowned out by narratives that weren't necessarily true, but were easy to repeat. It's much easier to just say they have no plan uh, than to run around and try to show people what the plan is, right? Um, I think that we were sort of outdone by by a lot of money and a number of narrative tactics that were just pretty clever, pretty effective. At the same time the city voted against remaking the police department, they did something else. They voted in favor of increasing the mayor's power, making him the chief executive of the city. Now all city agencies work the way the police department does, without direct oversight from council members like Jeremiah Ellison. The Minneapolis City Council have never had any legislative authority over the police department. Right. We've never had it. You tried Um, to change that as early as 2019. We tried to change it in 2019. We tried to change it um, in 2020. And then we finally got it on the ballot in 2021 and it lost. And uh, and so, you know, one one of the reasons that we wanted to do that is because the council sort of has a built in transparent platform to pass policy. Right. We have to give notice of introduction. Then we have to do a, a, a formal reading and referral to its proper committee. Then, you know, we have to draft the policy and put it out for, um, you know, for review, public review, and take public comment. Then we have to have a public hearing. Sometimes we have two public hearings. How does the policy making for the police work now instead? <sighs> you know, the mayor and the chief draft the policy. Uh, no vetting, no public hearing. Um, they just draft the policy. And, you know, you could have one mayor and one chief with their set of policies, and you could have a new mayor and a new chief sort of uh, just toss those policies aside. Um, it is it is completely sort of a, a, a behind-closed-door process, and um, and it is completely subject to sort of like the whims and impulses of whoever the current chief and mayor happen to be. And with Amir Locke's death, you can see the problems with that because 
Mayor Fry campaigned as having banned no-knock warrants. But it appears that whatever policy existed wasn't strong enough to prevent what happened. You know, I don't know if this is like a, a problem everywhere, but I can say in Minneapolis, sometimes we get into this habit of like, uh, you know, I call it like outsmarting ourselves, right? So we want to do something, but we don't really want to do it. And so we sort of play uh, a bit of a semantic game so that we've technically done a thing that we haven't really earnestly done. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's anyone's intention here. I'm not saying that that's the mayor's intention, but I feel like it's ultimately what, what happened. Um, there was probably some concern about banning no-knock warrants in earnest, but it was a reform, a popular reform that, um, that the mayor knew that he wanted to, to do and campaign on. And so the policy ends up being this thing that is maybe technically what he wanted, but, but, not, but not exactly what he wanted to do. Throughout a, a campaign, it certainly as more and more people and outside groups began weighing in, language became more casual, uh, including my own, uh, which did not uh, reflect the necessary precision or nuance. Uh, and I own that. And as, as members of this body- and, and I think that that's some of the problems when you don't have a transparent process. Look, the, there are members of the public who are going to catch on to any sort of semantic games that you're trying to play. They're going to uh, call you out for loopholes that you didn't really take into account. I've experienced that even with some of the, 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 the renter's rights that I've tried to pass, right? And ultimately, it strengthens your policy. I think the pushback on what you're saying, which is open everything up to public comment, is that it'll be a mess, is that it, everyone's going to be there picking at this thing. We'll never have a policy. It'll take a long time. And it's not efficient. The, the only department in the city of Minneapolis that functions um, this way, right, with this non-transparent policy creation uh, model, if you could call it, or lack of a model for policy creation, is the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, and it's also the only department that has a long, notable list of failures. Um, and so I, I think that like, while that might work as, as a bit of a, of a thought experiment, the evidence points to the opposite being true. You know, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard of the concept of like uh, uh, elite panic, right? Hmm. Uh, it's this concept that, you know, when, when things are actually going wrong, it's people in power who panic uh, in their, during their decision-making uh, and that everyday people actually find ways to cope and find ways to support one another. But what we think is the exact opposite, right? We think that, oh, uh, when there's uh, some kind of commotion or when, you know, when societal rules are starting to break down, you know, it's going to be the everyday people who are at each other's throats and we need strong leaders who can keep their, keep their shit together. <laughs> it's like we think that it's efficiency and we need speed when it comes to creating this policy. And yet, and yet speed and efficiency with a lack of transparency has consistently created chaos in our city when it comes to policing. So maybe we could just try the opposite, right? And, and if all of our worst nightmares just come to, come to fruition, then like, sure, let's go back to creating policies in the dark. But, but I think the evidence is starting to kind of, uh, you know, make itself uh, undeniable. 
More with Minneapolis City Council member Jeremiah Ellison when we come back. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, everyone. I just want to give a shout out to all of our new listeners. We see you out there and we are grateful. Thanks for tuning in. You can always get to us by email and tell us what you think of the show. We're at whatnext at slate.com. One more thing, do not sleep on our archives. There's a ton of great stuff back there. When you are done with this show, I highly recommend you scroll back. Okay, I'm going to go back to the show, but welcome to the club. Before he got elected to city council, Jeremiah Ellison was an artist. He did these big public murals. But he was always political. He was born into it. His dad is Keith Ellison, the former Minnesota congressman who is now attorney general for the state. It was after the shooting of a young black man named Jamar Clark that Jeremiah started thinking about going into politics himself. This was back in 2015. And the reason I ended up running, I mean, I I think there's a whole host of reasons, but um, Jamar Clark um, was somebody who was from North Minneapolis. You know, his older sister used to braid my younger sister's hair, right? So the community's small, right? Like, it's a tight-knit community. I didn't personally know Jamar, but you instantly start finding out that you've got all these connections. Uh, And he was killed, man, you know, I don't know, four blocks, five blocks from where I grew up. And yeah, so I I I was out on the streets and I had a lot of my neighbors saying, you know, we need different representation here on the north side. You know, you're from here. You do your work here you know, this community, would you consider running? I read that during everything that happened around Jamar Clark's death, you ended up at a city council meeting where you stood up, you kept your back to the lectern as you spoke, and you said, politicians will shake your hand and kiss your baby and slit your throat at the same time. Your dad's a politician, and now you are. Yeah. I mean, even in the moment, there are thousands of people holding elected office at any given time. I don't think that that was a a, a, a statement on every single person holding elected office, period. I think it was a statement on how people people placate instead of trying to solve a problem. And that that's the issue. People become maybe obsessed with holding their office more than doing the work of their office, and that that's a problem. Now that you hold this office, have you ever had those moments where you're like, I need to just say the nice words here? Or that's felt like a choice? You know, I've never, I've never done that. I think that I'm painfully aware Maybe, maybe, maybe overly aware of 
the various reasons that electeds don't say bold things, don't make bold moves, uh, don't hold strong on their stances on, on what they believe. I'm painfully aware that no one is immune to that. In the last election, you know, I, I was in a tight election. I was saying things about public safety that I still believe are true and that I think time will just further prove are true about policing in America, about the way that we, um, you know, have chosen to keep people safe or, you know, very ineffectively keep people safe in our, in our country. Um, saying very unpopular things about how we should expand that system beyond the police-only model that we have. Um, and, uh, and a lot of my colleagues who were holding that position with me, they lost their elections and I almost lost mine. And I think that the, the calculus that I made is that if I had to lose an election, standing up for what I believe in and asserting what I know to be true, that I could live with that forever. But that if I had to sort of soften the truth or tell people what they wanted to hear, regardless of whether it was true, in order to win, um, you know, that would be the very kind of activity that would make me no longer fit to hold the position. Some would say your job is to do what the people want, though. I think that there's, I think that there's a balance there. If what the people want is based on a well-financed, fairly sophisticated smear campaign. And you know that a part of what they're asking you to do is not the right thing. Then yeah, you owe it to them to sort of do the political education, to have the hard conversation. And you might not win them over in that moment. And you might not win their vote in that moment. But there was also this ideological divide in your own district. Like there has been a lawsuit filed by these eight Minneapolis residents, people who live in the district you represent. They wanted to make sure that the police were fully staffed, which is something that's part of the city charter. And so they went to court and said, you know, you have to fulfill this, essentially. You need you need to not defund the police because it says right here we're supposed to have this many people working the streets. And they won. These people aren't just random community actors, right? Like, <laughs> these folks are, you know, they're part of a political class. Um, they sort of kind of get billed in this way that makes them seem just apolitical and concerned. But I do think that there is a divide. And I'm, I come to this as a New Yorker, right? Where I do feel like there is a divide between older city residents and younger ones, where there's a conception that police keep you safe and they are there to keep you safe. Maybe they do bad things, but if they're gone, things might get worse. And in a city like Minneapolis, I think there might be a feeling that what happened when police officers left was that crime got worse. Do you not see that as a generational thing? Um, I mean, yes and no. So the reason I say yes is because of the people who are plugged in, when I'm thinking about, especially here in Minneapolis, Black residents in particular, I'm seeing that, I'm seeing that divide, right? And I'm seeing that it's a generational divide. 
I mean, but I would say that the vast majority of people, right, we, we tend to think of these things as two-sided, but it's almost always at least three-sided, which is to say that the vast majority of Black people in Minneapolis who can vote don't vote at all. They have lost so much faith in the, in the system's ability to manage any of these problems, right? And so to me, um, to place so much emphasis on the people who are in it and disagreeing to the point that you don't even see the people who are on kind of on the outside of the conversation and they don't even know what we're really talking about. I, I think that that's a really big missed opportunity. in to the push to defund the police, I sort of wonder if you're more or less optimistic about the kind of changes you want to make. Um, man, is there is is there like a neither option, right? Like I feel like like I'm not a pessimist at all, right? Like I I think I think things are possible. I think I think I think impossible things are are possible. Um, but to say that I'm hopeful is it feels like an overstatement. I would say that I'm convinced that with the proper amount of thought and the proper amount of due diligence, um, I can get things done. And if I can't reach that threshold, then I can't get those things done. Did you think it would be this hard? I knew that politics was something that I was always going to be maybe naturally disinterested in. Saw my dad sort of being in Congress and, you know, I remember being 16 and and being like, man, this is, uh, this sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like having, you know, like having people spray paint the side of our house because he's, you know, the first Muslim congressman sucks. You know, I don't think I thought that the Minneapolis City Council was going to be, I knew that the work was going to be important. Um, I didn't think that we would be sort of at the center of, you know, debating the future of policing in America. Um, I don't think I anticipated that part of the job. And I certainly didn't anticipate the amount of police killings we've had or the, um, or the pandemic. Um, I don't think I anticipated those things. What does all of this mean about what you do now? Because it seems to me like you're in a really tough spot. You just had an election where a bunch of the more progressive members of the council lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. More power was given to the mayor, not less. You've had this awful police shooting, which has revealed that some of the policies that people may have assumed were in place are weaker than they should be, or than maybe even they were intended to be. So what do you do now, given all that? It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> and it's one that I've been thinking thinking about quite a bit. So You know, when I heard the news of Amir Locke's killing, there was kind of a part of me, uh, like, not like the part of me that I'm the most proud of, but probably a bitter part of me that was like, hey, look, people just voted for me to not have a voice in these conversations. So I'm going to keep working on tenants' rights, and I'm going to keep working on rent control, and I'm going to keep working on these other policies. And, you know, like, 
I just fought for two years to have some legislative authority in this realm. And and the people said no. And I got to respect that. And I was going to just kind of, you know, obviously attend rallies and do that kind of thing. But I wasn't really going to make too much of my opinion known because uh, it felt like that my opinion had just been rejected in November. And then I watched the video. Um, and it was just a... Uh, uh, the cruelest reminder that I don't get to take a break from this conversation. That like, even if I'm, you know, frustrated with election results or whatever, that um, I've got to find a way to uh, assert my voice in this conversation. Jeremiah Ellison, thank you for being so generous with your time. And thanks for talking. Yeah, thank you. Jeremiah Ellison is a member of the Minneapolis City Council. He represents Ward 5. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Daniel Hewitt. We are led each and every day by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. It's where I post things that did not fit into the show each day. Like last week, I interviewed a Uyghur woman. She used to be a TV star in China. You can go see the music video she made while she was still over there in my timeline. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. In the meantime, I will catch you back here tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.